Welcome, anyway, um, to the uh, next session of this um, fourth module. Um, those of you who've uh, been sharing in it uh, in the previous weeks will have already appreciated um, not only how stimulating it is, but also how hugely important the issues are. Um, and I've, I've heard many a comment, Duncan, as to just how much folk have appreciated the, the clarity of what you've been teaching and the helpfulness of that. So we, uh, we give thanks to the Lord for you. We're going to pray for you before we start tonight and just ask that the Lord would indeed continue to minister through you in a way that will be for his glory in our lives. So let's join then in prayer. Lord, I'm looking at, at all the, the names on the screen, and it's lovely to see so many different folk here gathering together. We do come before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and are glad to own him as our Savior and our Lord. And even as we gather from different parts of the city, different parts of the country, to acknowledge before you, our Father, that uh, you have been good to us beyond all words. And not least, we thank you for that. Um, remarkable grace whereby uh, you have justified us in and through your son and we we pray please that as Duncan uh, addresses this theme tonight uh, you would really anoint him by your Holy Spirit who delights to glorify Jesus in such a way that by your spirit we might have our minds illumined and our hearts warmed and that we might uh, rejoice all the more in that grace that has been shown to us in your son. So would you help Duncan? Uh, thank you for him. Bless him even as he becomes a blessing to us this evening. And may we all know your rich hand upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Over to you then, Duncan, and we'll look forward to it with eagerness as always. Thank you so much, Jerry, and thank you all for keeping coming back it is a huge encouragement that there's uh, interest in these things and um, hopefully you're encouraged week on week as we build up this beautiful picture of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ this is of course week three of module four of our foundation course and um, in the first couple of weeks just to give the very briefest of recaps in week one we gave some consideration to the subject of authority and particularly, as we're doing in all of these sessions, we've been going back to, to what was, what was re-grasped by the reformers and those who walked in their shoes. And uh, uh, the subject of authority was, was key, really. It was, it was the foundation of everything. Uh, who has the final say on what is true? The reformers lived in a time where the church believed that the church had the final say on what was right and wrong. They were the final arbiter on all matters. But the reformers, praise God, uh, came to understand that uh, scripture alone is the final authority in all things. And so with that basis of authority in place, they were then able to say, well, what is the message of scripture? And last week, our second week together, uh, we considered what it has to say about the condition of humanity. And we saw that it was, to say the least, um, not, a, not a rosy picture. While human beings have been created with great capacities, that there is something glorious, something wonderful about how every human being has been made in the image of God. What is undeniable also, however, is the fallenness and how affected by sin we are. 
that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And unless God acts to, to bring us to life, then we have no hope of ever returning to him. And so this week we do try and move logically from where we finished last week. We, in effect, we have a diagnosis. We have tested it against our own hearts, I trust, and we have found it to be true. And so tonight we start to ask, well, what of the cure? We begin to understand the subject of justification. But before we do that, I want to say I received a couple of excellent questions in the week. And um, one was an excellent question regarding the church. And I'm going to save that till week six. So if that was your question, hang about till week six. We'll get to that. But the other was about this conviction that human beings don't have anything within themselves to move towards God. So I want to just quickly read the question, and I'm going to give a pretty brief answer to it as well. The question centers on the Roman centurion Cornelius in the book of Acts. He is described as a devout man who feared God. The narrative says his prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. He has not yet heard the gospel and believed in Jesus. God's response to his good deeds is to send an angel, a vision to Peter, followed by the preaching of the gospel when Peter visited. Clearly, Cornelius and his people were saved when they heard the message. Would it be correct to say that Cornelius's good deeds, when done, while still dead in transgressions and sins, moved God to send the gospel to him and his people and save them? Um, as I say, that's an excellent question, and this is exactly what we want to do with these sessions, is to, is to study them in the light of Scripture and to ask, is what we're talking about found in the pages of Scripture? And, and this is a great question. You find this in Acts chapter 10. And I just want to quickly read the verses that are referred to in the question. Acts 10 opens like this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. And the rest, as they say, is history. But the question really is, it seems, doesn't it, that the Lord responds to Cornelius first, uh, um, giving alms. I mean, he's, he's, he's a charitable giver and praying. And specifically, it says, verse four, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And the language there is really the language of, of sacrifice. They've risen as an acceptable sacrifice before the Lord. But I think what we must be careful not to miss is that Cornelius's steps here in terms of almsgiving and prayer, they are not the first steps here. And in fact, even though we're not given much detail, we're told that there's a history to that. Something predates his almsgiving and his prayers, because we are told, without much elaboration, that he was a, dev a devout man who feared God with all his household. And so really when you see this, this definition of God-fearers throughout the, the book of Acts, it appears a few times, really in Luke's mind, it is Gentiles who were sympathetic to the Jewish message, but had not fully converted to Judaism. So here we're seeing that actually 
Cornelius has already responded to something. Um, he fears God. He has encountered the message that has come presumably from the synagogue in Caesarea. He has responded to what God has revealed about himself to Cornelius. And I think that this general principle is what we see in scripture, is that where um, that revelation that God gives is responded to in faith, it is there that God gives more light. And that is the case for Cornelius. And so I see, actually, this is a story of how God has already been at work in Cornelius, has already been opening the eyes of Cornelius, is already preparing him to receive the good news of salvation. And I hope that kind of gets it how that narrative fits in with this broader picture of what the scripture says about our lostness. So anyway, let me come to tonight's session. I'm going to share my PowerPoint. Uh, which hopefully you'll find helpful. Hopefully you all received the handout that was sent out earlier today. And uh, you will find, um, I think everything, every, all the quotations, certainly the lengthier ones are in that handout. And if there's anything that you think is missing, please do just let me know. So with that foundation of human fallenness in place, certain aspects of the, the reformers doctrine of justification, they become inevitable. They become inevitable, namely that salvation is, is utterly dependent upon the free grace of God. If it really is the case, and I contend that scripture says it is, that we are unable to commend ourselves to God or even move towards God, then God has to be the initiator of salvation. And that's where Luther lands, we mentioned this last week, in his lectures on Romans. He says, the righteousness of God is offered to us apart from our merits. The Lord does not accept the merits of any man, but has compassion on us freely. I mentioned last week the influence of the church father, Augustine, um, particularly his writings from the early fifth century. Um, and his influence on Luther's thought was, was valuable, at least in confirming Luther's conclusions about the human condition. And in a sense, that's just part of it, right? I mean, not surprisingly, the other part of the theological equation was pretty much on the money too, because Augustine did a lot of work developing a theology of grace, so much so that one of his by names in later times was he was simply referred to as the doctor of grace. So I mentioned last time a particular work of Augustine's entitled On the Spirit and the Letter which seems to have influenced Luther's early Reformation thought. Well, here's what the doctor of grace had to say. Through grace, the unrighteous man is justified freely. That is by no preceding merits of his own works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. For it is given not because we have done good works, but in order that we may have power to do good works. Luther and Augustine are entirely at one in their conviction that you cannot have an understanding of the grace of God that is based on human merit. And if you just think about it for a moment, that must be the case. Um, otherwise, it ceases to be, by definition, grace. If you earn it, then it is no longer grace. And how helpful it would be for us, perhaps, every time we, we think of that word grace, or we, we see the, word, the phrase God's grace, if we if we replace the word grace with God's gift, then we get more of an idea, don't we, that, 
we're not allowing ourselves to earn this thing. It is something God freely chooses to bestow upon us. I mean, you can you can hold the view if you want that God's grace um, is is given to us in response to something that we do, but I think you need to find a different word for it, because grace is the unmerited favor of God, unmerited favor of God, and so we're being focused on our definition of grace this evening. Um, traditionally, there are there are two strands of uh, grace. Uh, I suppose that terminology is not quite right. God's grace appears to us in two distinct ways. First of all, we have what's known as common grace. That is uh, blessings which are still undeserved that God gives to all people, whether they be believers or God-fearers or not. The list is endless, isn't it? I mean, just think about things you've done today. Uh, The gift of life, intelligence, love, relationships, medicine, the gift of being able to behold something beautiful. The list is endless. This is God's common grace. And so when we speak of common grace, it has in mind those blessings which are not part of salvation, which are common to humanity. But the second strand of God's grace, or the the second way in which God's grace comes to us, is in saving grace which is much more specific. It accomplishes something specific, namely the salvation of human beings. It's received by a specific group of people, that is by believers in Jesus Christ. It is mediated through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so you see the difference here, don't you? This is the grace of salvation. And that's what we're spending our time on tonight. Not not common grace, but saving grace. And it's interesting that what seems on the face of it to be a straightforward concept actually has an awful lot of misconceptions around it. Uh, Alistair McGrath, who's an excellent writer on Reformation theology, points out that prior to the Reformation, there had been a tendency to view or understand grace as, as like a substance, almost like a liquid that God had in his cup, something that God poured into someone in order to help the process of redemption. It was, so they thought, this grace that bridged the gap between sinful humanity and the holy God. Um, I remember a good few years ago now being at a, a baptism in the Church of England, and I'm sure it wasn't the official doctrine of the minister, but she was explaining the importance of the Eucharist, of communion, and that it was a way of being topped up with grace, topped up with the Holy Spirit when we feel the tank is running empty. Well, it's that sort of thinking that wasn't actually uncommon in in Luther's day, to think that God poured more of this stuff into our lives. That's what helps us in our religious duty. And the problem with this is that it assumes that grace is something that is distinct from God. You see, something that God simply has in his possession that he can distill to us. It's not just something he gives us. The reality is that God's grace is not a substance. It is an attribute of God. It describes God's demeanor towards sinners. In fact, just think about this attribute of God. He is gracious. This is an attribute that is, so to speak, it's it's responsive. Without human beings falling into sin, 
Without having these undeserving creatures to relate to, God could never be said to be gracious. It's not like when we read in, in, in 1 John where he says God is love. And that is, that is an eternal attribute of God. God always has been, always will be love. It's not dependent upon anything else. Always within the, the Godhead, the Father has, has been in this relationship of perfect love with the Son. But when we come to grace, here, in a sense, God is responding to his creatures. It's a relational attribute, isn't it, that requires a moral mismatch. And I want to spend a bit of time just tracing this idea through some of the pages of Scripture just so that we're clear on how the Bible speaks about God's grace. My sense is that we think of God's grace as little bundles of joy, little blessings that come to us. We think about God's grace as something warm, something cuddly, the sort of thing that keeps us cozy on a cold winter's night. And there is a sense, of course, that it should. But I want to make a case that Scripture does not present God's grace as something pretty, or easy. In the 1930s, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously warned of the dangers of cheap grace. Cheap grace, he wrote, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That's what it boils down to. When we have this soft, cuddly picture of God's grace, we often are picturing a grace without Jesus Christ. We have this view that in God's grace, he is happy simply to sweep things under the carpet. But that is not biblical grace. So if you have your Bibles, please do turn with me. We're going to go back to the book of Genesis again, like we did last week. So again, just think about how God's grace is revealed even in the fall, how it all starts out. So let me start with uh, Genesis 2 and verses 15 uh, to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Here God is very clear, isn't he, about the requirements that were placed on Adam and the penalty that would ensue for disobedience. Well, we read the interaction between the woman and the serpent last week. Uh, let's pick this up in verse 14, which is really the fallout from the disobedience. Verse 14 of chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I want to say to you that what we have here, as much as it's really, if you were to put a heading over it, you would say God pronounces uh, the curses uh, in response to sin. That actually here we have God's grace demonstrated. And we see that in the simple fact that the, the Adam and Eve did not die. I mean, God had said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And God is gracious. They do not drop down dead there and then. In fact, you could go back, couldn't you? Adam goes off, they go off hiding in the bushes, and God goes looking for them. God goes looking for them. They don't go looking for God. They want to hide away from him, but God seeks after them. Where are you, God asks. God gives them the hope of a deliverer. Verse 15, this proto-gospel as he is cursing the serpent, speaking of the enmity that will exist between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. The offspring of the woman shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And I think that's what is taken up by Adam when you get to verse 20, where we say the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. He calls her life. And I don't think that is a rebellious move on Adam's part. I think this is Adam claiming the promise of God. He sees that in his wife, there is the hope that a savior will come. He takes hold of the promise of God and he calls her life. Just after God has said to dust, you will return. Adam claims the promise. Verse 21, we see that God made for the two of them garments of skins and clothed them. You see the instinct of the sinner, which we saw when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, their instinct was to cover. They wanted to cover up their nakedness. They wanted to be covered before God. And in fact, you can read this pattern throughout scripture where uh, the judgment of God is described. You think about the, the later chapters of Matthew, the Lord Jesus says what it will be like when the, um, when the son of man comes and they will, they will hide in the mountains and ask to be covered so that they be hidden from the judgment of God. But human coverings are woefully inadequate. And God provides them with a covering, which was surely much less beautiful. You, know, you can imagine that uh, the sewing together of leaves would be a much more ornate thing than the skin of an animal. The animal had been slain. Blood had been shed. And in actual fact, what are we left to assume here? That this is actually a bloody covering. That they're given animal skins. I have a quotation for you, which you'll find on page two. It's taken from Martin Luther's, um, um, I beg your pardon, it's not there. It's on page two of your handout, and it's taken from Martin Luther's lectures on Genesis. Listen to what he makes of this. Here, Adam and Eve are dressed in garments by the Lord God himself. Whenever they looked at their garments, these were to serve as a reminder to them to give thought to their wretched fall from supreme happiness in the utmost misfortune and trouble. 
Thus, they were to be constantly afraid of sinning, to repent continually, and to sigh for the forgiveness of sins through the promised seed. This is also why he clothed them, not in foliage or in cotton, but in the skins of slain animals, for a sign that they are mortal and that they are living in certain death. It's a somber picture, but it is a presentation of God's grace. But surely more than that as well. And I must admit, I've been surprised um, when I've looked into this, that neither Luther nor Calvin see anything of the atonement in these animal skins. But this is a repeated pattern in Scripture. This hope that they had in God would be accomplished through sacrifice. Well, let's move on. Another example for you, the, the calling of Israel. So you'll be familiar with the story, Abram, uh, while he was living in paganism in Ur of the Chaldees, he was called by God. We don't read of Abram seeking God. We don't read of him somehow first pleasing God, simply that God calls him. And I think if you read the book of Joshua, there's a specific reference there to how he was called out of paganism. You come to the narrative of Jacob and Esau. And even while those twin boys are in the womb, it's crying out, isn't it? As we read the story, Esau is far preferable to Jacob. Esau is the firstborn. Jacob is, can't be trusted. He's duplicitous. And yet God, in his grace, chooses, uses, and changes this rogue called Jacob and transforms him into Israel, which means prince. It's grace. It's messy. But we begin to see that grace has to be messy because grace only has any use if it deals with that which is messy. Grace is redundant if everything is clean. Think of Israel coming out of Egypt, the giving of the law. We often think of the law in the Old Testament as, as the means that God maybe gave to his people for them to earn favor with them. Keep the law and God will accept you. But even just a quick reminder of the chronology of what took place will change your perspective on that. God's people were rescued out of slavery in Egypt first. That rescue required the sacrifice and blood of the lamb at Passover. Then, having redeemed them, having seen the lamb slain, then God graciously gives them the law. You see, he redeems them first. It's an act of grace. And the law is given to show them how they respond to that grace as God's people. And um, some passages of scripture uh, from Deuteronomy 7, this is made clear. Uh, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. In Deuteronomy 9, there's something similar is said to the people. Understand that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess. 
for you are a stiff-necked people. But this is grace. And we often think the Old Testament is a place where grace is hard to find. But there in Deuteronomy, which, you know, that, that, that title is actually literally means the second giving of the law. God is gracious. God's people are reminded that they were called and saved by grace. Not called and saved by their obedience, but by grace. The grace of God is his unmerited favour, where he provides for his people the things they cannot provide for themselves. Included in the Old Testament law was the system of sacrifices. Again, just, just think, through, think it through for a moment. We might speak of the sacrifices again as to how the people presented themselves to God through the priest and all this. But the system of sacrifices was not devised by a man. It was not humanity's proposed solution to the sin problem. It was not Israel's greatest effort to appease God. It was God's response to human sinfulness. It was God's response to their need for forgiveness and restoration. So just as God provided the ram that went in the place of Isaac, just as God provided the system of bloody sacrifices, so he provided his son, full of grace and truth, the fulfiller of all of those Old Testament pictures, the one who fulfills his gracious mission of rescue that inevitably leads him to a bloody death on the cross. I think of the occasion in Mark's gospel where Jesus tells the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven. And you remember how there's this unspoken consternation in the room because it's blasphemy. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And so Jesus asks a question. What is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say to the man, take up your mat and walk? Now, of course, there is a sense in which to say your sins are forgiven is easier to say. That's the easier thing to say because it's unverifiable. But actually, it was never an easy thing for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven. Because he knew where that was going to take him. There was an inevitable cost to the Lord Jesus for him to forgive our sins. He is nailed to a tree. It is gory. It is painful. It is uncomfortable. Carl Truman, in his book, Grace Alone, puts it like this. Sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God. And biblical grace is God's violent, raw and bloody response. God's grace is not just this warm, cuddly thing we often think it is. Quite simply, because God's grace is not God ignoring sin. It is not God saying, don't worry about your sin. Let's pretend that it never happened. It is God's commitment to remove sin out of the way. To see that the divine punishment that sin deserves is fully meted out that it will not fall on us but on the god but on god the son incarnate this is the nature of saving grace well last week we pointed out that the prevailing view in luther's time was that salvation was initiated by a person doing what was in them 
And Martin Luther used to hold on to this view in his uh, lectures on the Psalms, uh, 1513 to 15, so you know, two, two to four years before he nailed his theses to the door. Um, his assessment was this, the doctors of theology rightly say that God gives grace without fail to whoever does what lies within them. And at this stage, Luther is just reflecting the views of the church all around him. Do what's in you and God will give you grace. But Luther had a breakthrough. And we thought about it in terms of the human condition. But that was just part of the equation. The crucial turning point was in his understanding of the righteousness of God. And it's interesting that even though Luther was clear on the medieval church's doctrine of salvation, it seems he was also clear that it didn't add up. In theory, it all seemed fine. The theory seems to hold together in some way, if you think about it, separated from real life. But when he compared the theory to his own experience, it led him to nothing but despair. Because Luther was a man who rigorously did what was in him. God gives grace to all who do what is in them. Luther did what was in him. The story goes that he was caught in a thunderstorm, narrowly missed by a lightning strike, and it put the fear of God into him. So much so that that very night he prayed to God that if he was brought through the storm alive, he would become a monk. To Luther's mind, that was the surest way to get right with God, to devote his entire life to God in this way. But to Luther's great torment, there was a problem. There was a problem with doing what was in you. You could never be sure that you'd done enough. Because there was always something more he could have done. Some other sin that he could have confessed. Listen to his recollections. These are, these are on page four of your handout. I tried as hard as I could to keep the rule. I used to be contrite and make a list of my sins. I confessed them again and again. I scrupulously carried out the penances which were allotted to me. And yet my conscience kept nagging. It kept telling me, you fell short there. You were not sorry enough. You left that sin off your list. I was trying to cure the doubts and scruples of the conscience with human remedies, the traditions of men. The more I tried these remedies, the more troubled and uneasy my conscience grew. I was myself driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God? I hated him. What a place it had driven him to. It was in studying the scriptures that Luther had his eyes opened to see that the message of the gospel was not one that said, do your best and God will save you. It said you were dead in trespasses and sins, utterly unable to save yourself, utterly unable to make even an inch of movement towards God on your own. But God has provided a way of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, whom we are united to by faith. In so doing, you receive everything needed for a right standing with God. You are righteous if you trust in his son. So Luther describes the penny drop moment, and it centers on his study of Romans chapter 1, verse 17. I'm sure this was mentioned in the Romans module uh, last year. Uh, Romans 1, verse 17 um, 
And let me read from verse 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Um, here is what Luther has to say. This is a lengthy quotation. Um, the full quotation is in the, on the last page of the handout. Um, this is just too compelling to, to, to crop. So listen to this. I had been seized with a really extraordinary ardor to understand Paul in the letter to the Romans. But until then, there stood in my way, not coldness of blood, but this one word. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. For I hated this word, the righteousness of God, which by the use and usage of all the doctors I was taught to understand philosophically in terms of that so-called formal or active righteousness with which God is just and punishes the sinners and the unrighteous. For however irreproachably I lived as a monk, I felt myself before God to be a sinner with a most unquiet conscience, nor could I be confident that I had pleased him with my satisfaction. I did not love, nay, rather, I hated this righteous God who punished sinners. And if not with tacit blasphemy, certainly with huge murmurings, I was angry with God, saying, as though it really were not enough that miserable sinners should be eternally damned with original sin and have all kinds of calamities laid upon them by the law of the Ten Commandments. God must go and add sorrow upon sorrow, and even through the gospel itself, bring his justice and wrath to bear. I raged in this way with a wildly aroused and disturbed conscience, and yet I knocked importunately at Paul in this passage, thirsting more ardently to know what Paul meant. At last, God being merciful, as I thought about it day and night, I noticed the context of the words. Namely, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Then and there I began to understand the righteousness of God as that by which the righteous man lives by the gift of God, namely by faith. And this sentence, the righteousness of God, is revealed in the gospel to be that passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the just lives by faith. This straightway made me feel as though reborn and as though I had entered through open gates into paradise itself. From then on, the whole face of scripture appeared different. I ran through the scriptures then as memory served and found that other words had the same meaning. For example, the work of God with which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God with which he makes us wise, the fortitude of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And now, much as I had hated the word righteousness of God before, so much the more sweetly I extolled this word to myself now, so that this passage in Paul was to me a real gate to paradise. Before this penny drop moment, when Luther contemplated the gospel bringing the righteousness of God, all he could see was the holy standard of God to which Luther did not shape up. And what kind of hope is that? Christ, for Luther, was perpetually the judge. That's all he could see. But then he saw that salvation lay in God. 
laying God graciously giving his righteousness to those who apprehend it by faith. And for Luther, in that moment, everything changed. Previously, he had seen the precondition for justification in human effort and human work. But now, for the first time in his life, Luther clearly understood God gives the sinner everything needed for salvation. Because the sinner can't. God does meet the precondition for justification. Uh, Alistair McGrath, who I mentioned earlier, he uses an illustration. He says it's like um, being in prison with uh, the promise of freedom if you only pay a heavy fine. Now, the promise of freedom is real so long as you have the resources. Now, Pelagius, who we spoke about last week, and the medieval church, they work on the presumption that you have the money stashed away somewhere. You just need some help to find it. Freedom is worth more than money. Come on, just pay it. But Luther, along with Augustine, they come to see that sinful humanity, they don't have the resources to pay the fine. Because you don't have the money, the promise of freedom is of very little relevance to you. The good news of the gospel is that you have been given the necessary resources to buy your freedom. Someone else has met the conditions. Everything that God demands, Christ provides. Isn't that wonderful? So I want to press in now to our understanding of what it means to be justified. And again, you will have covered this uh, to some degree in the Romans module. Um, to justify is to declare righteous. I'm going to think about that first, this justification as a declaration. And you do particularly see this in Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, and to get a sense of the, the tone of, of the language that he uses in speaking of justification, I want to read some verses from Romans chapter 8. Um, just a short, um, well-known section, verse 33 of Romans 8. Paul asks these wonderful rhetorical questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So you see that even in that, that, those couple of verses there, that this language of justification, um, it, it, it is... It is legal terminology, isn't it? It's the language of the, of the courtroom. To bring a charge against someone is to allege their guilt. But here we see that no one can bring a charge of guilt against God's chosen ones because he justifies them. He declares them to be righteous. There is an advocate who is interceding for them on the basis of his own death and resurrection, which means that no one can condemn. And so you see, God has made this declaration in his courtroom. Therefore, sometimes this declared righteousness is sometimes called forensic righteousness. That is, it has been declared in God's court. And you see, this is how Paul uses this word justified. Um, Romans 3.20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Um, also in Romans 3, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Uh, Romans 5, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe even especially note Romans 4, verse 5, however, to the one who works, 
pardon, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. See, Paul doesn't say here that God makes the ungodly righteous, but that he declares them to be righteous. And that has to be the case because it's on the basis not of works. We've got no works to bring before God for him to actually show us to be righteous, but we come, nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling, and we are declared to be righteous in God's court. So when God justifies, there is actually a a double declaration that uh, takes place. We are, first of all, declared forgiven. There is no condemnation. Um, uh, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And this takes us to the cross, doesn't it? Where Jesus Christ suffers and dies. And he does so as the sin bearer. In God's sight, our sins are imputed to him, regarded as though they are his. And so he pays the penalty for our sins. Think of what that entails for Christ. Pain, suffering, death, abandonment by God, enduring the wrath for sins. And this is sometimes called the the passive obedience of Christ. And um, that language of passive obedience, just think of it as the things that were done to Christ. And through this, through his passive obedience, his suffering in our place, we are declared forgiven. But there is a a positive declaration as well. We are declared righteous. Uh, Abraham's belief in the promise of God was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, something that Abraham did not have in himself was declared to be his by God, namely righteousness. And this points us to Christ's life of obedience to God. That life was lived in obedience for us in our place. And so sometimes that is called Christ's active obedience. So you see the difference? And it's this that is credited to our account. It's imputed to us is the is the terminology. To be justified. Sometimes, uh, I don't know if you can remember this. I can remember something as a teenager. Someone would say, well, if you ever want to remember what justified means, justified is just if I'd never sinned. Um, And that's clever, but it by no means goes far enough because there's a double declaration. We are, our sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done on the cross, bearing the penalty of our sins. But we are also declared righteous, not just that our sins have been taken away, but in our account is this positive standing before God, which Christ has obtained for us through his active obedience, through his life of perfect obedience to God. Because of the nature of sinfulness, we need a righteousness that is given to us, not a righteousness that is earned by us. And so before we um, come to our screen break, which is coming up right now, I want to leave you with some questions to ponder. We're going to take maybe five or six minutes Um, is this righteousness then something that God works and produces in us? This is an interesting question because um, this is one of those occasions where actually the reformers and Augustine are going to come to different conclusions. 
both agree that God graciously gives sinners a righteousness which justifies them. And the question I want to leave you for these next five or six minutes is, where is that righteousness located? Is it in us or is it somewhere else? We, we closed that uh, part of our session with the question, uh, God graciously gives sinners a righteousness which justifies them. But where is that righteousness located? It probably seems like a strange question to some of you. But the question is this, is it something God works and produces in us or do we find it somewhere else? Well, we answered those questions by introducing a term that you might not have heard before and that you might uh, be frightened of at first. It's this one, alien righteousness. It is the answer to the question. What is the nature of the righteousness that is ours in Christ? It is to declare that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. This is what Paul speaks about in Philippians 3 when he says uh, he wants to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own. He wants this alien righteousness. That is, God regards the righteousness of Christ as though it were our own. This is a, a contentious point in Luther's day because here, actually, Luther diverges from Augustine. Of course, what we're really concerned about is whether he diverges from Scripture. That's what we're really concerned about. But let's go back to Augustine because this will help us. His conviction was that God's justifying the sinner was, of course, graciously given. But the righteousness itself was located and produced within the sinner. So the believer actually possessed an intrinsic righteousness after it had been given by God. It originated with God, but became a righteousness within the justified sinner. So advocates of this position would point to some of the language Paul uses, even in Romans 1.17, of how in the gospel the righteousness from God is revealed or is manifested. You find it elsewhere, chapter 3.21 of Romans, which implies that this is more than simply a, a distant gift, but a power that becomes evident in the life of the believer. Now, Luther does not uh, disagree with that. He believes those things happen in the Christian, but he believes that they are different from justification. And he sees it differently for a good reason. The righteousness that is imputed in justification is something that remains outside of the believer. It is an external righteousness, even as we put it here, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is imputed to us, not imparted to us. A key reason for coming to this conclusion is having to come to terms with the fact that even after justification, saints are still sinners. There still is within the believer the presence of abiding sin. So again, Luther speaks of this in his lectures on Romans, and in particular, the difference between what's happening inside the believer and what's happening outside when it comes to justification. So on page six of your handout, you'll find um, the, the relevant quotations here. 
Um, this is this is Luther speaking on on Romans four verse seven, which um, he quotes in the quotation. So he says, "If the passage that follows, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered, is to be rightly understood, we must therefore keep the following theses in mind: the saints are intrinsically always sinners." Therefore, they are always extrinsically justified. But the hypocrites are intrinsically always righteous. Therefore, they are extrinsically always sinners. Intrinsically means as we are in ourselves, in our own eyes, in our own estimation. And extrinsically, how we are before God and in his reckoning. Hence, we are extrinsically righteous insofar as we are righteous, not in and from ourselves and not by virtue of our works but only by God's regarding us so. For his reckoning is not dependent upon us and does not lie in our power. Therefore, our righteousness too is not of our making and it does not lie in our power. Luther there is saying that God is declaring us to be something that in ourselves we are not. The reason for declaring a believer righteous is not because of what is found within them, but because of what is found outside of them, namely what is found in Christ. Our righteousness is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. That's where it's located. Not within me, but there. He goes on, this is also on page six of the handout. For inasmuch as the saints are always aware of their sin and implore God for the merciful gift of his righteousness, they are for this very reason also always reckoned righteous by God. Therefore, they are before themselves and in truth unrighteous. But before God, they are righteous because he reckons them so on account of this confession of their sin. They are sinners in fact, but by virtue of the reckoning of the merciful God, they are righteous. They are knowingly righteous and knowingly unrighteous. Sinners in fact, but righteous in hope. hope that's coming across there. This is an important concept in Luther's thought. Um, but because the believer is justified by an alien righteousness that is outside of himself, then the believer is at one and the same time both righteous and a sinner. Simul justus et peccator um, was the Latin phrase, or as he put it in those, in those quotations, righteous in hope but a sinner, in fact, righteous in the sight and through the promise of God, yet a sinner in reality. He's not saying that this remains the same throughout the Christian life. He would very much argue that we do become more righteous, but the work of justification is the instantaneous work of God, whereby the one who comes to Christ in faith is declared fully righteous in the sight of God. And that is an important distinction. Luther's theology of justification was trying to make sense of the believer's relationship with sin. Luther believed that the, the prevailing view of the time denied the obvious, that sin continues to indwell the Christian. The belief that, that baptism could remove original sin was something Luther had initially agreed with theologically, but it bore no resemblance to his experience. He says, I did not know that though forgiveness is indeed real, sin is not taken away except in hope. It is in the process of being taken away by the gift of grace. 
You see, he sees clearly that sin will not be removed from us until the day that our hope is fully revealed. And of course, between now and then, it is being taken away as we are growing in our likeness to Christ. But it is always there until the day of hope comes. And this comes to the fore when you uh, come to a passage like Romans 7, uh, which if you were with us again for module 3, you'll have spent some time in that. Uh, And I want to talk about it for a little moment. When when Luther came to Romans 7, he had a significant uh, interpretive controversy to navigate. Namely, when you you read Romans 7, uh, Paul Paul uses this... um, this the, the 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 word I a lot, and it's the identification of who the I is, um, uh, where he says things like um, uh, the things I want to do I don't do. Um, if I do what I what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. I know that nothing good dwells in me in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And you may be familiar with that passage. Um, And even though Paul writes in the the first person singular, present tense, his writing seems to many uh, in both Augustine and Luther's day just to be irreconcilable with the testimony of of a regenerate believer in Christ. I mean, it doesn't seem like very spiritual language, does it? I do not do what I want. I do the things I hate. I know that nothing good dwells in me. Um, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. It doesn't sound like a Christian, does it? Could this really be someone regenerated by the Spirit who speaks in such terms? A common solution was uh, to view these words as Paul uh, somehow uh, assuming the posture of an unconverted Jew. Indeed, at one point, this was also Augustine's understanding. And you know, I mentioned to you uh, last week, Augustine, later in life, he reviewed all of his written material and he offered some retractions. Well, this is one of these things that he changed his mind on. Um, he used to think that it was this unregenerate Jew, and then he came to see that it was Paul. Here's what he wrote in his retractions. Augustine wrote, I certainly did not want this applied personally to the apostle who was already spiritual, but to the man living under the law, but not yet under grace. However, by the time Augustine comes to the Pelagian controversy. He's come to see the struggle in Romans 7 as actually the struggle of a spiritual man. Again, he says the apostle speaks in his own name and as a spiritual person and not at all as a carnal person. And for Luther, Paul's ability even to recognize that he is carnal is, as he puts it, characteristic of a spiritual and wise man. Indeed, Paul's description of waging war with indwelling sin is the mark of a true Christian. The unregenerate has no spirit with which to wage war against the flesh. It's only once we've come to Christ that this battle commences. So if it is the case that even after regeneration, the believer is still inherently sinful, then this has a significant bearing on the nature of justification. As Luther puts it, the saints are intrinsically always sinners. Therefore, they are always extrinsically justified. This was more fully worked out by the next generation. Um, in particular, Luther's right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon. Uh, 
who more clearly distinguished between the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. He really um, popularized that distinction. They were finding that these two in the old form of things were being merged into one. And that's what Augustine was guilty of. He saw these two as, as being under the same definition. So even though Luther agreed with Augustine on the abiding presence of sin, it's surprising, isn't it? This definition of righteousness is what separated them. Luther's lectures on Romans 4, again, this comes to the fore. He, write, he writes, in the scripture, righteousness depends more on the reckoning of God than on the essence of the thing itself. That person has righteousness whom God mercifully reckons as righteous because he confesses his unrighteousness and implores the divine righteousness. We are righteous through faith in God's word only as he mercifully regards us as righteous. And here lies the beginnings of Luther's doctrine of imputation. It's not that God makes the believer inherently righteous in justification, but that he chooses to regard the believer as righteous for the sake of Christ, through whom the righteousness of God is provided. Luther is explicit that the righteousness now possessed is not found within the believer. That regarding as righteous is not just a status, but something God acts upon. He treats the believer as though he really is righteous. It is as remarkable as that. So as I've said, for Augustine, justification is more than just God declaring that we are justified. In Augustine's mind, the word justified is equivalent to made righteous, made righteous by him who justifies the ungodly, so that the ungodly becomes righteous. You see the difference? God's action turns the person into one who's righteous. Now, on one level, it is true to say that the difference between Luther and Augustine is a difference in terminology. Though Luther's doctrine is going to develop further, he doesn't deny the power of the gospel to renew and to transform the life of a sinner. All he's saying is that's not justification. What Augustine describes includes what would later, for the Protestant tradition, be labelled sanctification. Luther would go on to distinguish these two as the difference between grace and gift. Grace actually denotes God's favour by which he is disposed to give us Christ and to pour into us the Holy Spirit with his gifts. The gifts and the Spirit increase in us every day, but they are not yet perfect since there remain in us evil desires and sins that war against the Spirit. Nevertheless, grace does so much that we are accounted completely righteous before God, for his grace is not divided or parceled out as are the gifts, but takes us completely into favour for the sake of Christ. And there's the difference. Justification is a once for all full declaration of righteousness. And the other thing, sanctification, is the gifts of grace, which are growing in us more and more each day. You are justified in an instant. You are sanctified over a lifetime. For Augustine, uh, justification is the, is, the, is the whole process by which one is made righteous. So what's the big deal? Why have I labored this point? The, the problem with Augustine's position is that it does not give the believer any assurance. 
you are never confident that you have been justified until you get to the final day and it's done. You see how important that is? The reformers say on the day of salvation, you are justified. You are as righteous in God's sight today as you will ever be. Fully righteous. It's a once for all declaration. For the medievals, for Ian Augustine, what's happened is you have embarked on a process of salvation. And with Luther's concern for assurance, that was the one thing he couldn't find in that system. How liberating to find that biblical message that in justification, in God's courtroom, he declares in that instant that you are righteous in his sight, right with him. And not because of what is in you, but because of what is in Christ. Well, let's press on. Uh, we come to uh, one of the, the, the great uh, mantras of the Reformation, uh, where we speak about saving faith. And uh, of course, famously, it's um, salvation is uh, uh, by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And here we want to think about just the nature of saving faith. There's a potential for a lot of misunderstandings about what saving faith is. Uh, the reformers are helpful for us because they see faith as possessing some key characteristics. First of all, saving faith is personal. And this is what Luther would describe as, as learning to speak about Christ and the gospel using personal pronouns. I love how he speaks about this. It's, how, it's, it's that transition from speaking about the saviour who died for sinners who saves sinners. It's, that, it's a transition from that to saying, my saviour, who died for my sins, who saves a sinner like me, who saves me. This is how Luther writes about this. He, he speaks about um, two different kinds of faith. Uh, let me make sure that we have this. Yes, you find it on page seven of the handout. The first goes like this, says Luther. You believe that it is true that Christ is the person who is described and proclaimed in the Gospels, but you do not believe that he is such a person for you. You doubt if you can receive that from him, and you think, yes, I'm sure he is that person for someone else, like Peter and Paul, and for religious and holy people, but is he that person for me? Can I confidently expect to receive everything from him that the saints expect? You see, this first kind of faith is nothing. It receives nothing of Christ and it tastes nothing of him either. It cannot feel joy nor love of him or for him. This is a faith related to Christ, but not a faith in Christ. Now listen to what he says about the second kind of faith. The only faith that deserves to be called Christian is this. You believe unreservedly that it is not only for Peter and the saints that Christ is such a person but also for you yourself. In fact, for you more than anyone else. And isn't that our experience? Just think of when your eyes were open to see Jesus clearly, when the conviction of the Spirit as the gospel came to you and you, you responded in faith, when it came to you in clarity for the first time, wasn't that the transaction? It wasn't about what everyone else was doing. It wasn't about how much Jesus was a sinner for everyone else. It was about your sin 
and your need of this Savior who could become your Savior by faith. And it echoes Paul's words of testimony in 1 Timothy 1. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He is describing personal faith. And what a discipline that is when you meditate on the gospel, when you meditate on who Jesus Christ is is to use those personal pronouns. Don't speak about the gospel in abstract terms. Speak about it as yours. Speak about Christ as yours, because he is. That is the nature of saving faith. It takes those things to be personal. There's a second characteristic, and that is um, trusting in God's promises. So it is a personal faith, and it is trusting in God's promises. This is something picked up on in James, the, the letter of James, who, who uh, speaks himself about two different types of belief. So here we are, another uh, distinction of different types of belief. He says that there is the sort of belief that um, accepts historical facts, that accepts certain factual propositions to be true. The other type of belief is one that moves beyond that and actually appropriates that truth. The first type of belief is something that is obtainable through our natural capacities. I mean, uh, anyone can understand and be convinced about the accuracy of something, but that is very different from saving faith. Yeah, this is, uh, I think, read how James puts this. This is James chapter 2. From verse 18, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And he goes on to make his point. But this is the point of, of James's distinction between faith and deeds here, a faith that is content merely to assent to the facts of the gospel or the, the, the facts of the historical claims of the Bible is, is a faith that is not worth very much at all on its own. That's the same sort of faith that the demons have. The demons have no doubt about the, the existence of God. They have no doubt about the deity of Christ. They have no doubt about the triune nature of God, about the miracles of Christ, about his saving work on the cross. They have no doubts about any of those things. They assent to them fully, but what good does it do them? It's not saving faith for them. Let's not mimic that kind of faith. That isn't saving. It, on its own, it it's, accomplishes nothing for the soul. True faith, on the other hand, is that which is then worked out in our lives. And that's the distinction between belief and deeds that James picks up on here. Uh, one of the ways I've, I've described it over the years is, is um, it's a bit like um, how we process different types of information. So, I mean, for example, uh, more than 50 years ago, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. And um, I, I confess to you that I believe that to be the case. 
I have never had much cause to doubt it. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty settled on my convictions, if I'm honest. Um, but if I'm really honest with you, it's not very evident in my day-to-day -day life because, well, it's just a historical fact, isn't it? It's all it is. I can remember it was in 1969. I don't remember it firsthand like some of you guys, but um, that, that, that's what I know. I'm not what I believe to be true. On the other hand, I have some other beliefs. Um, I believe that if I don't eat enough food and, and I don't drink enough water, then my body will suffer from malnourishment and dehydration, and it will become more susceptible to illness. And eventually, if I keep it up for long enough, will lead to death. And here I'm going to tell you that, that more than simply believing those things to be true, I live that out religiously. I have three meals a day. I try and drink plenty of water because, well, this is more than a historical fact. And this is the sort of faith we're talking about here. It understands that these are not just facts to be learned. These are things that have real life implications. And so we can never talk about the person of Jesus Christ, his active and his passive obedience in procuring salvation for sinners and merely treat it as a series of, of facts and figures to be learned. It goes deeper than that. This is not just history. This has implications for your soul. I understand those things to be true. And so I believe it. I will stake my life upon it. The point here is that saving faith has to be convinced that God will do what he has said he will do. We are placing our faith in the reliability and the integrity of God himself. He has told us that he has provided everything for our salvation in Jesus Christ. He has said that the one who trusts in Christ will be accepted in Christ before him. That Jesus' righteousness is ours. That his death on the cross was for our sins. Do we believe God? Is he going to be true to his word for me? That really is the question we're asking. Not just do I know what God has said, do I believe it? Am I tr going to trust God's promises? Here's Luther again. He must be certain that the one who has promised forgiveness to whoever confesses his sins will most faithfully fulfill his promise. And that's right, isn't it? Maybe all very well to, to know those details, but if we are not convinced that God will do for us what he said he will do, why would we ever come in repentance and humble ourselves before him? And this leads into an important clarification because it would be easy for us to see faith in itself as the thing that, that earns us something with God. We think of those, don't we, who, who we think have strong faith compared with our, our weak faith. And we I guess we naturally assume that they must be getting more out of their salvation than we are. But if we pause and just think that through for a moment, we'll see that, that actually there's something far more important at play here than the intensity of my faith. Far more important is the reliability of the thing that we place our faith in. The person who has um, weak faith in the reliability of an, of an aeroplane to transport them from place A to place B is in a far better position 
than the one who has absolute faith in his own ability to fly from a top floor window. And the example is preposterous, but it makes the point, doesn't it? Weak faith in a reliable aircraft is far preferable to strong faith in something that cannot deliver. What matters is not the strength of the faith, but the reliability of the thing trusted. Luther had uh, a wonderful way of, of just getting these things across. Listen to this. Uh, again, this is on page eight of your handout. Even if my faith is weak, I still have exactly the same treasure and the same Christ as others. There is no difference. It is like two people, each of whom owns a hundred guldens. One may carry them around in a paper sack, the other in an iron chest, but despite these differences, they both own the same treasure. Thus, the Christ who you and I own is one and the same, irrespective of the strength or weakness of your faith. And praise the Lord for that. You feel you've got weak faith. Praise God, your weak faith is in the great Savior. And who doesn't take encouragement from that? It's as if the scriptures say to us, lift your eyes from the weakness that you feel in yourself and look again to Jesus Christ, because he is the one who is holding you secure. The content of your faith is far greater than the intensity of your faith. And that's where that's, that's, that's the important way around for it to be. How often the scriptures are turning our eyes to Jesus. And this is a discipline for you as you're, as you're reading the scriptures day by day. Sometimes we want to bombard ourselves with impressive knowledge of the scriptures. Far more important for us is to fill our hearts with a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Because our faith is weak and we will be discouraged by that regularly. But if we are reminding ourselves of the strength and of the certainty, of the faithfulness, of the, the finished work of the one in whom our weak faith is placed, then we have a recipe for, for growing in our trust and dependence upon the Christ. So we see that uh, saving faith is personal. Saving faith is trusting in God's promise. And saving faith, third of all, is a faith that unites us to Christ. And in actual fact, we are going to spend all of next week's session on this subject of union with Christ. So I'm going to leave that there just to whet your appetite, other than to say that this is what faith does. So faith in itself, it's not as if God looks upon us and says, oh, well, you have faith, so I will show grace to you. We've learned that that's, that's just not possible, haven't we? God has to be the initiator. He has to even be the one to create faith within us. But what our faith does, it doesn't earn us something with God, but it hooks us into Christ so that we become his. It's the vehicle by which we are united with him. Luther describes it as a, as a wedding ring, which signifies the mutual union between Christ and the believer, between the bridegroom and his bride. And we're going to have a lot more on that next week. Um, I've included on page eight uh, John Calvin's definition of faith, which is taken from his institutes. And uh, you can see these elements, those, these, these elements of what saving faith is uh, in this definition. So what is, what is needed? 
uh, in faith. Uh, he says, a firm and a certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us, found upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What's he saying there? He's saying you need to know and understand the promises of Christ. He's saying you need to be convinced that they are true, that God really is benevolent towards us. He's saying that there is a need to appropriate these truths. It needs to be sealed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And uh, those same elements are drawn out from uh, that definition of faith in Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, in that same chapter, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Uh, what a far more uplifting evening to dwell on what it is to be justified. Uh, all of that time spent last week looking at the, the fallen human condition really reaps its dividends as we come tonight to think about all that Jesus Christ has overcome to justify us, to declare us right in the sight of God. And so I want to uh, uh, read a passage of scripture, which I've said I'll probably read most weeks. And I'm going to close by reading from Ephesians chapter 2 again, and uh, just to get clear in our own minds what the scripture says and what it means to be saved. Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Let me pray for us as we close tonight's session. Yes, Father, we want to thank you for how amazing your grace is. Father, we recognize that that your grace means that salvation is a gift, that we have not merited it, that you did not find some, some acceptable quality in us before you poured uh, your, your salvation out on us, before you showed this, this, this gracious demeanor that you have towards us. But you simply, you simply loved us. And in all of our unlovability, you loved us. And you gave us the most precious thing that could ever be given. You gave us your son who would come to not only proclaim forgiveness of sins, but to, to attain forgiveness of sins. And we 
we are humbled, deeply humbled, as we have returned to the cross of Christ again tonight to see the bleeding Savior, abandoned by God, made a curse for sinners like us. Oh, Father, keep reminding us that this is what your grace looks like, that it deals with sin. And we thank you that we are forgiven and we are declared righteous in your sight. What gift of grace is this that you have given to us, Lord? Father, may our lives, may our lives reflect that you are um, making us new into the likeness of Jesus. You have not only justified us, but you are changing us into his likeness. And I pray that for each one who's, who's part of this session tonight, Father, that that response of worship would be evident as we live our lives, that we would never quite get over the scale, the magnitude, the, the scandalous nature of your grace towards us. And Father, that that deepening appreciation would make us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Help us to be a people who are growing in our love for the gospel. And Lord, may that provoke in us a desire to share that gospel, which is still the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. So Father, bless each one who's been part of this session tonight. And Lord, bless us as we go into this new week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.